0: Hello and welcome to the Drill to Detail podcast. And I'm your host, Mark Rittman. Each week, I talk to one of the movers and shakers in the world of big data, analytics, and data warehousing, someone who either implements or analyzes the products we use to build the latest cutting edge analytics platforms, or works behind the scenes building the products that you'll be using on projects tomorrow. So, in this episode, I'm joined by Mike Grover, who's an engineer working on Spark at Cloudera. He's co author of a book that I've mentioned in the past that I've found really useful called Hadoop. Application architectures on our O'Reilly. So, Mark, do you want to tell us about yourself and what you do at Cloudera and what you do around open source?
1: Yeah, thank you, Mark. Uh, as you mentioned, I work mostly on Spark, um, and I have involved and dabbled in architectural stuff that I end up uh, helping customers with on designing their large-scale big data applications. Um, and on on the side, I am involved with some of the use cases. So, there's a new project called Apache Spot, which is an open source project for um, cybersecurity, and then a few other projects like Apache Sentry, which is a project for authorization, and Apache Big Top, which is a project for integration. Uh,
0: yeah, good, Mark. So, I mean, the reason I asked you to come on the show was um, <clears throat> the book you you, you co-authored um, particularly focused on on architectures, and we'll come back to that more later on, really, and how, I guess, from your point of view, and really from my point of view as well, it's not just about kind of like low-level technology. It's about kind of how you build systems, how you architect it, and so on, really. So we'll come back to that later on. But first of all, um, you mentioned that you're an engineer working on Spark at Cloudera. So why why is Spark so central at the moment to a lot of vendors' kind of strategies around big data and a lot of customers, really? what What is it about Spark that makes it so kind of like, you know, central now and so key in uh, people's architectures?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I think... The de facto processing paradigm in the big data space used to be MapReduce, and that was the first thing that came out. It was a part of Hadoop, um, and it leaned a lot towards fault tolerance and resilience, right? So everything was written to disk or to HDFS in between MapReduce jobs. Um, However, that paradigm was pretty slow that you could only do a map and then a reduce. Uh, So that was very slow and just contrived. And there was a slew of execution engines, Spark being one of them, that said, we will do a fast general purpose execution engine. So really a replacement for MapReduce that makes use of things like memory and caching data in memory and doing a good job of spilling it to disk if it doesn't fit in memory. And Spark falls in that category. So why is Spark or something like Spark so critical to so many platforms? Because... Is the new way of doing general purpose processing in a programming language in the big data space. So why do you think Spark got
0: traction compared to, say, kind of Tez or compared to things like um, Storm and so on? What was it particularly, do you think, about Spark that was, I suppose, right. made it kind of universally kind of uh, you know useful now and, right. and taken
1: up? Right. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, that was mostly adoption. And I think most of these general purpose platforms uh, really look forward to other higher level primitives and platforms being developed on them. And so in the Sparks case, or in any, uh, keeping the discussion generic for mm. another minute, um, you, you would want like a machine learning library, a graph processing library, a Sparks, uh, a SQL library, a streaming library to be all ported on your engine. And we saw this happen with MapReduce, but now this became competitive, right? Uh, there were all these libraries. So Storm had this Trident library that was trying to bring in State to Storm. Spark, of course, has a rich ecosystem of other projects and Tez had Hive uh, predominantly that was trying to use it. Uh, and I think it was uh, a matter of community who was first to the game, um, uh, the push from the vendors on which which platform are they going to invest in. And some of that, I mean, some of that is mirrored as well. I think Spark did a lot of things right. Um, but much of that also... Came from just the ecosystem, and I think Spark built a very good ecosystem that helped it uh, take a much larger place than the other players in the space.
0: Okay, so so Mark, just I mean we've got we've got quite into the weeds kind of fairly on, really. I suppose with, with, with that kind of conversation there. <clears throat> so for anybody um, on the on the listen to the podcast who's heard of Spark and kind of knows that it's it runs faster maybe or it's more kind of modern than say MapReduce, just in kind of layman's terms or in simple terms, what what is it about Spark? As a kind of a way of processing data that makes it more um, faster, say, or uses memory better than say MapReduce, just in kind of simple terms, what what is it about Spark that it's the, the special thing about it, really?
1: Right. So the special thing is that you can build a general purpose DAG, a DAG being a directed cyclic graph of operations and operators. Right. So in MapReduce, let's say if you were doing something non-trivial. You would do a map, and then there would be a shuffle, and then there would be a reduce. And let's say you wanted another reduce step. What you have to do is you have to write, uh, you have to chain two map reduce jobs. So you would have a map, a reduce, and and then another map, and then another shuffle, and another reduce. While in Spark, you could have a map, and then a reduce, and another reduce, and another reduce, without really having uh, to uh, complicate the DAG by multiple map reduce jobs equivalent. Uh, The problem with having multiple MapReduce jobs, for example, was the fact that between MapReduce jobs, you had to persist the data onto durable storage, that usually being HDFS or S3, and that has a non-trivial cost. So that's one big thing. The biggest benefit, you can uh, chain your operations in Spark in a much more flexible way than you could in MapReduce. And the second one is the use of memory. You know, MapReduce was very highly skewed towards not using memory. And mostly leaning towards rel- resilience, while Spark, I think, is more lean towards. Let me be a little more aggressive in terms of use of memory than MapReduce was.
0: Yeah, so so certainly from my perspective, the fact that it's not writing everything to disk every stage is 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 generally what you want because you've got more memory these days, and and uh, not every job has to have everything kind of written down and so on. Um, I think also for me was the fact that the the Spark kind of, uh, I suppose, platform also supports things like SQL, it supports, um, you know, machine learning and so on as well. Um, So, I mean, for yourself, have you got involved in things like sort of Spark SQL and and so on? I mean, do you see those as being sort of key parts of of, of what Spark is to people?
1: Absolutely. I think Spark SQL is becoming more and more core. And that's A, because SQL is a dialect that's spoken by many data engineers along or across the world, uh, yourself and myself included. But B, also from an execution engine perspective, if you raise the level of conversation, of course it's easier for people to use it, but also it allows you room to optimize for things that you couldn't do otherwise. Uh, if I told you that my data set was sorted or bucketed in a particular fashion in my SQL query, I have allowed you the ability as an execution engine to make use of that information when processing uh, that data. But if you're always doing low-level analysis and you're reading files, or distributed files, so to speak, um, you may not have that information or your constructs may not allow you to make use of that information. So it's good from both end user perspective, but also from an execution engine perspective because you can do a lot of optimizations.
0: Okay, so so um, I mean, certainly from, my, from, from what I've seen, um, Spark SQL is interesting from an Oracle background, the fact that we can run, for example, SQL commands within a kind of like a, a data processing language, Reminds me very much of of PL SQL in Oracle terms with right. you know SQL in there as well. So there's a few initiatives around that I've seen, say Hive on Spark and Pig on Spark. So where do they fit right. in really? So when would you want to use say you know Hive on Spark and Pig on Spark as opposed to say sort of Spark SQL or maybe things like Impala? I mean how how do how do we kind of like understand those and and particularly those two things there, Hive and and Pig on Spark? What's the role of those really?
1: Yeah, that's a very good question and. Um, I think the question stems from this root problem of open source. In open source, um, we, you know, we have the benefit of using all these projects, but that also means anyone can come up with new projects to better the ecosystem. So it's uh, uh, it's it's the yin and yang. To answer your question more directly, um, these are just my 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 personal thought process when I go about choosing uh, these engines. So. Pig on Spark is probably the easiest to talk about. If you are already a pig user, pig uh, translates to MapReduce usually, but you want faster pig uh, jobs, then you move on to Spork or Pig on Spark. <laughs> if Now, the question is much more interesting when you're talking about pure SQL space, because Pig Latin, the language that you use to talk to pig, is not SQL. Um, so in, pig sequ- uh, in the SQL space, we've got Spark SQL, which comes as a part of the Spark project. Then we have Hive on Spark, and then we have Impala. So Hive on Spark, uh, similar to Pig on Spark, as if you're using Hive, but you want faster Hive queries, then you use Hive on Spark. But also Hive on Spark uses Hive's SQL Planner, which... Uh, which is good and it's also more resilient. So, Hive on Spark is a little more lean towards resiliency. So, if you had long running ETL jobs, you would use uh, that, for example, over Impala. Impala is more for real time, massively parallel concurrent queries. Uh, these are your Tableau dashboards or uh, something similar that you would, or your NBI analysts would. Uh, would access Impala to get to the data in S3 or HDFS or Parquet or something like that. And then Spark SQL is, A, a way for people who are just writing Spark programs to not have to do RDD operations, RDD being the primitive uh, in Spark that represents a distributed data set, but to raise that level of conversation and say, like, dataframe.sql, can you get me this data? But also it's become this new way to send data to a server, that server being Spark Thrift server, and say, here's my SQL query, can you give me the result? In that sense, Spark SQL is competitive in terms of goals with Hive on Spark. Uh, However, the Thrift server is pretty new and in my opinion lacks a good chunk of concurrency testing and resilience and also some security features that I haven't really seen a lot of confusion amongst that so long story short my answer is if you have a spark job and you just want to have an easier way of accessing data set and not do uh, nitty-gritty access of these lower level primitives use spark sql if you already invested in hive and pig for etl jobs and you want faster hive and pig jobs then you use the equivalent on spark and if you if you want real-time access uh, concurrently for SQL queries that return you data real fast, then use Impala.
0: Exactly, and I think um, in a way that, <clears throat> unlike say, you know, with a vendor that might have a kind of overarching product strategy that takes everything in, you know, as you said, this is an open source kind of world, and so you would get a high, you would get a hive on on Spark project where it could be kind of contradictory or, or certainly overlap with other things there as well. So to my mind there isn't there isn't necessarily a role for everything that is completely non exclusive exclusive and so on there really they're just there and I think certainly that the fact with say you know Hive on Spark, is the good thing about that is you can use kind of like, you know, that, that's a normal kind of Hive implementation. So it's with a different engine underneath it. And if you want to use Hive, you can use that. But certainly from my perspective, you know, Spark SQL is a way that you can run SQL commands within, you know, within a kind of a, a Spark job and, and do the kind of things that in, in Oracle terms you would do using kind of embedded SQL in SQL. So, so I've, I've seen um, certain, I've seen some BI tool vendors support Spark SQL as a kind of BI interface, really. And it, 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 would would you really kind of say that was what you'd use for BI? In our, I mean, we'll get into architectures later, but could you use Spark SQL as a, as a substitute for, say, Impala, for example, or fundamentally at a lower level, are they doing things differently and, and you'd be stretching the, the sort of analogy a little bit too far doing that? I mean, what, what do you think on using space right. Spark SQL with, with kind of BI tools?
1: Yeah, so with that, you would be using the Spark Thrift Server because you need a server to connect your, your tool to via JDBC or ODBC. Yeah. And I don't think the Spark Thrift server is at a point today where I would use that uh, in production. Again, I think it stems from the fact that uh, with concurrency, the performance uh, is is not uh, very well tested. And the security features that, that many people use in productions, like accessing with Kerberos uh, and authenticating against that server, mm. are also aren't. Uh, fully there yet. So Mark,
0: um so together with some colleagues from uh, from from Cloudera at the time, you wrote a book a few years, a couple of years ago called Hadoop Application Architectures. And I thought it was kind of good for two reasons really. First of all, it, it reminded me of some of the books, some of the good books I've read um from the world of Oracle that I, I come from, uh books by the likes of Tom Kite and so on, that, that don't just talk about, you know, how you do something, but they talk about why you do something. But what I thought was particularly useful with that book was that it focused on a bunch of use cases, and it focused on a bunch of, of kind of like I suppose design patterns and, and common uses of Hadoop, and it went through and actually kind of told you how the tool, how you various, how you integrated the various parts, and, and I suppose how you designed um, a Hadoop system, and, and particularly that 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 look into your philosophy and the philosophy of how you go about building a, a good Hadoop system that particularly kind of interested me really. Um, so what I'd like to do in, in a way is to go through kind of one of the chapters in there. Um, well, first of all, just Mark, just tell us, first of all, you know, what was your thinking behind that book? Why Why did you and your colleagues write it? And um, again, what were you trying to achieve really with, with that book that was different to
1: other Hadoop books that were out there before? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for the kind words. The book was precisely what you mentioned. It was More to do with why would people do a certain thing and less to do with how would you go about doing it. And primarily the reason was that there was a good amount of documentation and resources about how. How do you write a MapReduce job? How do you write a really good Hive query? But there wasn't a very good amount of resources on, well, I want to build a fraud detection system for my credit card company. How do I go about doing that? And uh, so from a macro perspective, which technologies do I choose? Once I've chosen the technology, how do I model my data? And that's the book's uh, premise, is to answer questions like that from a higher level. Okay, so let's, let's, take, let's take an example then, really.
0: So, so one of the chapters that I, I found useful was on, on clickstream analysis, and it was relevant to me at the time because um, I was doing some work for our company um, to actually look at the visitors to our website and do some sessionization and analysis and so on. So let, let's use that as, a, as an example. Let's use that as a kind of a, a case study in a way. And go through it kind of bit by bit and, and really hear from you how you would kind of design a system using Spark, for example, and, and what, would, what would your philosophy be around this? So yeah. So in, in the, in the clickstream chapter, one of the first things you say in there, it's quite controversial, it says, define the use case. Right, now, <laughs> why, 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 why
1: is it important to do that? Why did you make a point of saying design, define the use case? Right. So the way I like to approach problems is in two steps. The first one is to come up with the vocabulary of the things that I'm gonna need. And the second one is for each of those vocabulary terms, go find the right pieces of technologies that can, that can fit that piece. Uh, and if you don't have the use case clearly understood, you can't do even the first part, which is coming up with the vocabulary terms because your use case requirements dictate a lot of, your use case requirements dictate all of the architecture.
0: Okay, so how, how would Clickstream then be, different? taking Clickstream as an example, you know, what, what is the vocabulary you would use right. to, defi- to define that, that leads yeah. into your design?
1: So, so let me verbally define what uh, you and I mean when we talk about Clickstream uh, and what was that in the context of this book and the use case. So uh, in a traditional Clickstream scenario, we've got a website where people come and they just click on a bunch of things. We may have some goals that we want them to click on, that we monitor, the more people click on those goals, the better it is for us, right? But also, usually you display some banners and ads on other partner sites, maybe you track some cookies, maybe you pay some money to a blog post person to write a guest blog post for you and they wanna track the clicks that came from that guest blog. Maybe you're showing ads on Google and you're paying for them. Maybe you're investing in paying somebody's salary to do SEO stuff. Maybe you are paying Facebook to show ads and so on and so forth. And you want to, at the end of the day, do this analysis called attribution analysis, which is this fancy term for something really simple. It just means you want to see the return on investment on your marketing dollars. Should you invest more money in Facebook? Should you invest more money in Google? Uh, or maybe pay some more money to write guest blog posts? Which one should you go about? And so having a data-driven decision in this use case was what we were trying to achieve. Right. Okay.
0: Okay. So, so when you talk about the verbs you use, you talk about storage, you talk about kind of ingestion and so on that. I mean, I'd like to kind of step through those as we go through this kind of, yeah, of the conversation. Let's do that. But so, so with storage, surely it's all just HDFS, isn't it? You know, how, 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 how is there a question around storage and, and what, right. what you know, how do you approach that kind of question?
1: Right. So the five verbs that, uh, that you were talking about, we'll go through them one at a time. The first one is storage. And the reason this is important is you can store your data, uh, the wrong way and the right way for your use case. If you store it the wrong way, all your processing is actually going to be really slow. So this is probably one of the the biggest, the single biggest decision you're going to make in your use case is how do you model your data in the storage system, okay? And so the, the few big choices you have here is HDFS uh, and HBase and Kudu. So there are these three choices. So HDFS is really good for scan-heavy workloads, which is... I've got this data for 10 years. I want to scan through all of it and do some aggregation. But it's really bad for random read workloads. Be like, oh, this Mark Rittman person looks really interesting. I want to go track out all of his activity for the past 10 years. That's a different use case. And so if you have a scan-heavy workload, you use HDFS. If you have a random read-heavy workload, you use HBase. So where does this whole Kudu thing fit in? You already have a podcast on this, so I won't really delve into this. But it's trying to bridge this gap that people would have to have an HDFS storage and an HBase storage. And Kudu is trying to say, down the road, you will only have one storage. You will store all your data in Kudu and you can do both scan-heavy workloads and random read-heavy workloads off off of this one storage system. Anyway, for ClickStream, you are heavily scanned... And that's because you want to see how many people came to my website last year, how does it compare to the year before, and so on and so forth. So it's a scan-heavy workload, which means you lean towards an HDFS storage model. Okay, what about when it goes into cloud? I mean, if, if, you, were to, if you were to use, say, um, you know, Cloudera,
0: Hadoop with, with say, uh, Amazon S3 and so on, how much does kind of abstracting it to object in the cloud affect things? Or right. That-
1: so, yeah, it's a good question probably worth having a completely different podcast on to talk about <laughs> cloud there's so much stuff you can talk about but on cloud to keep it short there mm-hmm. is uh s3 is for example the aws blob store and that that i think is uh, more or less equivalent to hdfs uh in terms of logical vocabulary the first step we were talking about and so you would store the data if you were storing your data in hdfs you would store it on s3 if you're storing your data in in hbase then you would still be storing it on HBase, but you'll be running HBase on the cloud.
0: Okay, so so one of the next verbs you talk about is, is ingestion,
1: really. So so right. how
0: how do you decide about ingestion? What kind of questions do you ask, and 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 how do you? I suppose how do, how do you think about that sort of layer?
1: Yeah, uh, good question. So ingestion, you want to mostly talk about what's your source systems and what's your destination systems. Your destination system, in this case, we have already, because we have decided on the storage, our destination system is HDFS, right? Uh, Our source systems in Clickstream uh, could be a few things. So in this example, it could be your web server logs, which are Apache or Nginx logs that are stored as raw text files somewhere, Uh, And then they could also these logs likely need to be streamed into your system because you don't want to wait like five days before you are able to analyze the clicks that happen today. And so you want some sort of streaming ingest mechanism. And then you may have some cost data or HR data. Right. So you may have some cost data for your marketing campaigns that's stored in a database somewhere. So you have to pull that uh, every night or every so often and you may have some other operational crm data that's also stored in the database so for the streaming data now so these are so we have taken the verb of ingestion and we've broken broken that up into even smaller verbs we have broken that up into streaming ingestion and ingestion from relational systems and actually there are different tools that we will use for that so for streaming ingestion there's a tool called flume that integrates with kafka so flume can read off of your spooling directories, which is where the logs are being generated. And as the files get rotated, Flume reads them and then throws them into Kafka. And then your downstream processing, which we haven't talked about yet, can read from Kafka and do something with it. Uh, For other systems, like relational databases, there's a tool that we already alluded to in previous part of the podcast called Scoop. So it can help you scoop the data from the relation systems and put that into HDFS. At the end of it, all your data from the ingestion system uh, would be in your destination system. That's HDFS. So Flume puts data in HDFS, and Scoop also puts data in HDFS.
0: Okay, so then you've got the data processing part there, and and um, again, how do you decide on that really? And also, to what to what what kind of implication is there around the fact things are real time as well? Um, you know, it, it, I know obviously there's Spark streaming, there's Spark and so on. You hear about Lambda architecture and so on there as well. Um, How how do you approach the data processing part of it, really? And and what are, again, the key decisions and key thinking you do around that?
1: Right. So processing, uh, you asked two questions there. The first one is how do you talk about processing? and The second one is how does the architecture change real time? So I'll talk about the processing part first and I'll allude to real time. But uh, yeah, so let's start with processing. Processing, you're mostly deciding what engine you're going to use. So the conversation we were having earlier processing engines in the Hadoop ecosystem and the O'Reilly blog post that we were talking about, that's processing, right? Do I use MapReduce? Do I use Spark? Do I use Flink? Uh, Do I use Hive? Do I use Pig? That is very use case driven. In this use case, for example, an example of processing would be an aggregation, like how many people uh, from which state came on the website per day, right? So that's an aggregation. That can be done in all ETL tools. PIC can do it, Hive can do it, it's pretty standard. The, another kind of processing is sessionization, something you were trying to do, Mark, in your previous life. And so that is a it's a processing that's a little more stateful because you have to store, like, who is running a session right now, when do we close that session, so on and so forth. And SQL, being a stateless language, is very difficult to somehow work around that. So many people want to go one level lower, and do that level of sessionization in MapReduce or Spark or something like that. So in our use case, we chose Spark because it's faster. We we didn't want to write in Hive and have a complicated query that we, even we didn't understand. Um, so that that was our uh, processing paradigm.
0: Okay, and um, orchestration. I mean, how, how do you typically orchestrate these these, these systems? I mean, again, what are the questions, what are the choices that you look at
1: and, and so on? Is it Uzi? I mean, what, what, what do you think right. about around that? Right. So number, number four is analyzing. Number five is orchestration. Uh, analyzing number four is just like, how do I get my end users to analyze this data? Uh, and for that, we recommended Impala. Uh, and you connect your favorite BI tool for analyzing that data. Number five, as you were saying, orchestration is this essentially a fancy word for cron jobs, right? How do I cronify my data? And there are a few different tools. There's uh, Uzi, there's Spotify, there's Eskaban. We have seen like... It's not the sexiest tool at all. It's just like something that just needs to work because your core of the architecture is the first four, four parts. Um, and I think Uzi is the most commonly used one. And if your organization doesn't have a vested tool for orchestration, just go ahead and use Uzi. But if you already have a vested tool that integrates well with Hadoop, my recommendation is don't, don't worry too much about this. Just use, if you have a tool that works, just go ahead and use it. So so actually I actually left
0: out analysis there until the last because that's for me is, is one of the most interesting parts ah, and I see. and uh, yeah I caught you out there so 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 <laughs> So obviously, a lot of systems built like this—they have an analysis part as well. And so users would want to analyze the data, produce some reports, do some kind of analysis there. Would you? What's your thoughts around that? I mean, do, would you use Spark SQL for that? Is this where, for example, things like Impala come in? Is there a particular reason why you might use Impala rather? You know, what? How do you? How do you approach the analysis part? Because that, that's the area that I'm most involved in, really. So, right. yeah,
1: yeah. So requirements usually for analysis, and and I would love to hear if I'm missing something here, Mark. My requirements that I get from customers are usually highly concurrent access from like 100 BI users on the same data. It has to be near real time. It has to give the results really fast. Um, And for that, I have seen Impala to perform the best. It's very uh, concurrency focused. It's uh, very fast because it doesn't build on top of any general purpose engines. It doesn't use Spark or MapReduce. It just hits the the storage layer directly. Um, And so Impala is pretty common there. And most people would end up using a BI tool uh, to, to access this data on Impala using JDBC or, JDBC or ODBC.
0: So how, how much, if you, if you had, say, both Spark and Impala on a system, how much additional overhead do you have from having to hand data between the two things? Do you have to think about, is the requirement for where you place data in the cluster different for Impala? I guess my question is, how much of an extra complication does Impala add to it? And is it worth it, really? Ah, I see what you mean. Mm. I,
1: I, think, I think the stuff that Impala does today, no one really does really well. So it's just a matter of how badly do you need the stuff that Impala does. And, this, and when I say the stuff that Impala does, it's like high, uh, high throughput, low latency, concurrent SQL access. Right, And I don't think Spark SQL plus the Spark Thrift server is at a point today where it can provide that low latency um, or the concurrency in a secure way. So so it's just a matter of, I think, it depends on use case to use case. It's hard for me to tell that in a general term.
0: Okay. And and, and lastly, I suppose, um, how, how much manual work is involved in doing this? Is Is it... So, so what you've talked about there is, is a very intelligent way about designing the system by layers and so on and so forth. Um, how, how much manual work is involved in them running a, a, a Spark system, a cluster? Is it something that you would recommend people go on courses for and learn, or, or is it
1: largely self-maintaining? What was your thoughts on that, really? Right. Uh, so there's a part about installation slash setup, and then there's a part about maintenance. Uh, The installation setup has been a problem for a while, and it's been a problem that's very well addressed. There are very good management tools out there from many different vendors that do a fantastic job of setting your cluster up. Like, it's a no-brainer. Sometimes I feel like it's just too easy that people don't realize how complicated it is to actually set up and not really understand the intricacies. Uh, But yeah, setup, not a problem. Monitoring maintenance is something that is a problem, especially around the streaming use cases. Because streaming means you have a long running process. And some of these technologies were developed with the frame of mind that you've got a batch job that runs for five minutes or five hours, and then it stops and it cleans up the resources. But in streaming, you've got this job that ideally runs for the eternity, right? And then how do you upgrade when you have a streaming job running at the same time how do, how do you gracefully shut down a streaming job? So I think the monitoring man- maintenance aspect is very clear in the batch mode. Uh, upgrades are also very well supported by the same management tools. You can do these things called rolling upgrades. Uh, and Cloud AI Manager, for example, supports that. It's like you have a 100-node cluster. You roll 10 nodes from, from the old version to the new version tonight. You roll another 10 tomorrow night. And everything is just fine. The end users never see a difference. But I think for streaming jobs, the maintenance slash upgrade story is still something that needs to be worked on.
0: So, so Mark, um, what, when people look at say uh, in big data in the past or, or MapReduce, they spent huge amounts of time writing uh, MapReduce code in Java, and I think a lot of people kind of were put off then, or they certainly, in 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 retrospect, it was getting into too much detail and not looking about the big picture and so on there. And and, the question I had for you originally was. If you're gonna learn Spark, do you learn Scala? Do you learn Python or or whatever? But the bigger question I guess really is, how do people, how do customers or or users who've built maybe systems in the past using say MapReduce and so on, how would they look about, how would they look at adopting Spark? And in a way, what's the kind of process they'd go through to start thinking about how you're gonna do it? And and even in a way working out whether Spark is a relevant technology for them.
1: Yeah, usually it's driven by pains that you currently have. In general, if you don't have a pain, don't try to fix it, right uh, and mo- but most people do have a lot of pains with MapReduce, and they arise from just low high latency, uh, complicated contrived uh, workflow, and writing jobs that are really long and if that's if that pretty much sums up your life with MapReduce, spark will definitely help. So how do you go about transitioning? uh evangelizing that within your organization converting your project to spark which languages do you pick uh, spark is written in scala Sorry, or, go or, ahead, or even
0: or even or even you know do you think about language at this point really um because right. i think i think a lot of as an engineer we tend to think about um do we use scala do we use this do we use that you know right. but is it, is it right. really is is even is even thinking about language the, the key thing really i mean is that is that important or in a way, is there a kind of bigger question or a more kind of like pertinent question? Or a, a yeah, is it is it all about language
1: or is it about something more than that? Really, uh, I think it's yes and yes. Uh, so you have to think at multiple different levels, and we can let's start from the top, and we'll try to to come lower, lower. Uh, so at the top, like yeah, if you have these pains, you definitely should consider some something new, like Spark. Um, Most of the paradigms, most of the logical things that you did in your job in MapReduce translate directly to Spark. So there isn't anything that you were missing out on that was in MapReduce that's not in Spark. Um, Now, more coming to the lower level, you still want to think about a language. And the reason is Spark is written in Scala, which is not an important consideration. The more important consideration is that Spark runs on the JVM because Scala, like Java, Uh, translates to bytecode. And when Spark has very good support for Python and R, but I do think that support for Python and R historically is slightly lacking compared to the first-class citizen support for JVM-based languages. So usually if you have a workforce that's trained already in a JVM-based language, you're doing great. But then if you have uh, a workforce that's, say, Python-heavy, then you should look at particular features of Spark you're using and make sure that they are at par with their Scala and Java counterparts. An example I'd give you is that we recently worked on a feature to read uh, from Kafka uh, in Spark using a new API that Kafka introduced. And this was uh, committed to Spark 2.0. However, we only, in the first release of Spark 2.0, we only had implementation for the Scala and Java APIs. We did not have implementation for the Python API. And so if you were a Python user and you needed that, you either had to wait a few more releases um, or not use that in this release, right? So if that, and, and if, we, if you have a Python workflows, and this is very important to you, you should look into that first before you jump onto that bandwagon. In general, if you are JVM-based, you're fine.
0: I mean, from, from my side, um, certainly the fact that... Um, that, that um that Spark is written in Scala uh, means that you would, you would want to go for that as your, as your primary language, if you could, really. Um, but certainly for the kind of use that I would make of Spark, for example, which is more in a kind of maybe a machine learning kind of context and stuff like that, or, or BI context, Python's useful for me because I tend to know Python, you know, and I'm not that bothered about the very, very latest kind of features in, in, in Scala for it and so on. It, it, it kind of means that I can I can be productive really, which is quite useful. Um, but um, so so apart from kind of, we've talked a lot about about. Can um, I clarify Spark. one thing yeah. from
1: the previous question? Yeah, yeah, I do I do think Scala is a very good choice and a very common choice. I do think that most JVM languages. So if you were choosing between Java and Scala to write your Spark applications, there isn't uh, uh, much difference. So if any JVM-based language will be almost equivalent. Uh, whether you are running on JVM or off JVM makes a whole a whole lot of difference
0: so 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 okay just for for, for maybe the the less in, less <laughs> the more ignorant amongst why why is why is why why the distinction about a JVM language why is that so important
1: right so if you're using python for example if you're using something off of JVM then you have the overhead of uh, of serializing and sending data and back to and from the JVM right if you're running off of JVM spark At the end of the day, whether you wrote your application in Java and Spark was written in Scala, the JVM doesn't know the difference, right? It's all bytecode at the end of the day. So from the JVM perspective, your Java code as an application developer looks just the same. And that's why I say all the JVM languages that are at par. Uh but non-JVM languages are not at par. Okay. So within Scala, I noticed there's a lot a lot of kind of constructs and, and, and the way you
0: program it is al- along with say sort of functional programming. Is 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 Scala a better fit for say for for Spark in terms of the way it works with say objects and functions and so on, or is it really kind of is, is there anything in it at all really?
1: Right. Yeah. I mean the APIs flow really well if you're using Scala. Right. So there is perhaps a subjective benefit to it that you can just very easily understand the API because you know the Scala feel of things. Uh, But again, if you're heavily invested in Java, I don't think it's worth switching. But if you're if you're kind of on the fence, yeah, go lean towards Scala.
0: Okay, okay. So so we've talked a lot about um, about Spark, and it's almost time to kind of finish now. But other project you've been involved in, you mentioned right at the start, with is Apache Spot. Um, and yeah. I, I noticed that was about cybersecurity and so on. Tell us a bit about Apache Spot and, and what you've been doing with it, and, and what it, what that project's about, really.
1: Yeah, so I have always been very interested in use cases, and a use case that's come uh, pretty often recently is off security. Um, And Hadoop ecosystem has actually a lot of projects that can help with that use case. And this project is just to design Apache Spot, is to put forward data models that can be used by partners in the security space to build their projects and uh, products on top of this to help the end goal of making the world more cyber secure. Uh, So what do we do here? In general, the status quo today is that when you want to talk about security, you're only looking at the context of the network. So let's say you have, you have a bunch of computers in your organization that are open to the public and just data is flowing in, network data is coming in, and what you have is solely the context from what is hitting your computers, what's hitting your networks. So what we are to do in Apache Spot is to add a few other data models that can be combined to give you a very good perspective into security. So the first model you can add, for example, is a user model. Um, connect your active directory or who is data to the network data? Is this person allowed to be accessing this computer? So on and so forth. The second model you can add is endpoint model. Uh, so in the traditional Internet of Things use case, is router, this router X supposed to be talking to computer C, right? Um, and so once you combine these disparate sources with the traditional network flow of uh, data, You can derive a lot of interesting insights from this. And that's a project that I've been involved in. Yeah, the three other co-authors. The book is called Hadoop Application Architectures, and the uh, the authors are Gwen Shapira, Ted Malaska, Jonathan Sideman, and myself. <laughs> <laughs> Right, so my next uh, travel conference is O'Reilly Strata Hadoop World in Singapore. Uh, The pleasure is all mine. Thank you, Mark.